Are you passionate about making a difference through design? Join us at the Human Centered Design Network's Circle, a new private community for change makers just like you. Connect with like-minded professionals, gain exclusive rights to monthly learning opportunities, and lead the change in human-centered design. For more information, see thisishcd.com. Now, let's get back into that episode. It actually gets really interesting because most of the work that went into applied creativity after this, what the academics were really trying to do was, and they were largely academics, they were trying Mm -hmm. to establish repeatable processes. So in science, one of the things that defines the scientific process is that if you do it a second time, you'll get the same results. So reproducibility. And they were trying to do the same thing. And you get a lot of quite dense, thick, voluminous academic publications going through this and they don't quite get it and they don't quite get it and they don't quite get it and they don't quite get it. Hello and welcome to Bringing Design Closer on This Is 8CD. My name is Jerry Scullion and the founder of This Is 8CD. I'm a designer, educator, design coach and podcaster, obviously based in the wonderful city of Dublin, Ireland. Now our goal here is to have conversations that inspire and help move the dial forward for organisations to become more human-centred in their approach to solving complex business and societal problems. Now in this conversation I caught up with Zoe Rose of Great Question in Canberra. Zoe's based in um, Canberra the capital of Australia as we all know. We speak about the background and history of design methods and we go as far back as 1950. Zoe is a well of information on this topic and proves to be a really fun and enjoyable exploration back in time. I know you're going to really enjoy it so let's get straight into it. Zoe Rose, I am delighted to finally have you on the podcast. We've been messaging probably close to a year, a year and a bit for, um, you know, trying to work out a time and a schedule. For our listeners who aren't aware of Zoe Rose, maybe introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do. Hi, Jerry. How are you? Uh, I am a UX designer based in Canberra in Australia. A little while ago, I shifted gears on my career to focus more on a trying to get the next generations of designers up and running by turning my mind to workplace learning and design education. That has recently taken me into a master's by research at University of Technology, Sydney, where I'm looking at design capability frameworks, specifically in the Australian public service. And I have a range of really specific and annoying hobbies. Yeah, go on. I can't leave you hanging on that. You have to tell me what they are. All right. No, it's oddly wide and oddly specific. I do big bubbles. You know those big bubbles? Yeah, I do. My kids love them. Yep. I've been perfecting my my own personal bubble recipe for the local climate for the last couple of years. Uh, I cook a lot of regional Chinese food. Um, Yeah. You can't just say... You cook Chinese food because anyone who knows anything will just say, well, but what region? So uh, several, but my my focus at the moment is Hunan because it's relatively less sophisticated in terms of complexity than some other areas. So looking and, at that, yeah. like just, just on that point, like, you know, with Chinese food, there's obviously lots of, um, you know, different techniques and different methods mm-hmm. that go into producing uh, the, the cuisine. So we're going to talk a little bit more around your interest in multiple methods. 
and also the origins of these things. I just saw I saw a segue there and I was going to jump straight on it. I could see a parallel between your interest in Chinese food and design methodologies. Tell me where that interest came from. The interest in design methodologies? Yeah. Oh, I think it's the the designer's hunter instinct um, where you want to understand it and 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 eventually that's going to take you backwards. Yeah. Well, a lot of people that I'm um, kind of learning, uh, especially kind of emerging talent is probably a safer um, way of describing it. They they seem to um, have a, maybe it's an academic thing. They don't really go back in time to really understand the origins of where things came from, and understanding you know what they were trying to achieve by these different methods. So, how far back have you gone in your research in the historical kind of uh, backgrounds in in design methods? Mark? All right. I have two answers to that. One of them is a really good punchline. So I'm going to hold it over. I never never say no to a punchline. Okay. So in terms of how far back do we go where it's a sensible place to start? Yeah. In terms of creative thinking methodologies, a sensible place to start is the 1950s, but more specifically the 1950s in America. Because what was happening in the night, yep, what was happening in the 1950s in America was you had a surge of interest in trying to document and systematize creative thinking. And you had Mm. that coming up for a really specific reason, which is that for a little bit of the time there, it was starting to look like the USSR was going to win the Cold War. What about going even further back? Because I remember when I used to do mm-hmm. work for the RSA in, in London and I I held several events in, in Australia mm-hmm. and we had fantastic speakers from UTS actually about indigenous engineering. Mm-hmm. And because you're from Australia, have, have you managed to go further back like in time rather than, um, I guess, the white perspective of like it began in the 50s and the industrial mm-hmm. kind of the production age, um, has there been any exploration down to the indigenous uh, methods that they used way back um, before the white man took over their country? So I'd be less inclined to think about indigenous creative problem solving as being historical because uh, indigenous Australia is the oldest living culture on earth. So to regard that through the lens exclusively of history would be to not see a lot of the innovation that that was uh, current and alive and kicking now. Okay, so we will frame it from the 50s on. Depending on what you want to do and where you want to go. We also have different different standards, different... um, sources of evidence that we can rely on for different stages of uh, history and archaeology. Now, there's going to be archaeologists out there who are going to be slightly annoyed at me for for this oversimplification, but the point at which cultures develop writing or choose to adopt writing, bearing in mind that not every culture that encountered writing actually chose to adopt it, okay, that changes what we know. Uh, if we are exclu- if you were exclusively walking through my house 
And the only thing that you knew about this house was that it had coffee cups and chairs um, and an odd uh, lump of metal that seems to have contained something at some point. That wouldn't actually tell you what I was thinking, doing, feeling, seeing, being, right? Yeah. So there's a, I would be really hesitant about including too much specific about uh, Indigenous Australian culture into a conversation like this, just because so much is guesswork if we are looking into the deep past and a lot of the innovation that's happening now is the kind of thing that people talk about. Yeah. like So in the 50s, what does it look like then in the US, as you were saying? So... All right. Who was who was leading the way? Who was doing the interesting work in the 1950s as regards okay. the progression of design methodologies? Right. So the answer to that is going to annoy you more than you can possibly predict. <laughs> Starting to annoy me now. Are you joking? <laughs> <laughs> the person who's actually doing a lot of the kickoff work around what will eventually emerge into uh, academic research-based study of creative thinking uh, is actually the guy who came up with brainstorming. All right. Yeah, that guy. Okay, so his name is Alex Osborne. Uh, He's an advertising executive, like full, you've got to think like cigar-chomping madman sort of a situation. Yeah. Yeah. So the situation he found. Wild guy. Yeah, no, no, like you've got like with the with the bristle cream through the hair. Oh yeah, this guy. Yeah, all all of that, all of that going on. So in the nineteen, yeah, in the nineteen thirties, he had a advertising agency. The agitation, the agency hit the skids. Um, They were running out of money. He needed to do something relatively drastic. He came Mm. up with an idea. There's a little caveat hanging off of that. Um, He came up with an idea. Uh, and he developed into the process which he later wrote a book about, and that book was called Applied Imagination, 1953, and that introduced uh, the world, or mostly America, to the process he came up with, which he called brainstorming. Now, if I had to ask you now, Jerry, what would you say that is? What what is the brainstorming process? Is getting everything laterally, everything that's on your mind that's interconnected to a subject, onto a wall so other people can build on it yep terrific that is universally the answer that i i get is some variation of that osborne's brainstorming process was actually a three-step process okay the first step was to get everybody into for any given value of anybody everybody get everybody into a room and get them talking about a problem and just come up with as many ideas as they possibly could purely a numbers game and he was very specific that you're not allowed to shoot anyone down it's very much a yes and we're just trying to get number 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 as much as we possibly can about ways to potentially solve this problem step two yeah step two was just go away and not think about it for a day okay lovely the subconscious plays into it then pardon the, the power of the subconscious you let the subconscious much. like just just rule, let it yeah. gestate just let it gestate and yeah. the third step was to come back uh later hopefully after overnight go look at all the ideas you had 
and narrow it down to the one or two out of the entire spread that might Mm. actually solve the problem or the problem area that you were already given. Now we're designers. So we kind of recognize that, right? That's diverge converge. Yeah. Yeah. That's what he's doing. He's doing diverge converge. Yeah. But he didn't come up with the idea of diverge converge. Like he didn't come up with the, um, uh, the language of diverge converge. That was yeah. actually someone who was doing research, uh, another American who was doing psychological research with um, pilots in World War II. Right. Because he was pretty sure that creative thinking, which he called, uh, which he came up as diverge converge, the, the kind of intelligence that goes in many directions, that's what he was looking for. He was pretty sure that was a better predicator of leadership than IQ tests. Uh-huh. And he had a good reason for thinking so too. Okay. Mm-hmm. On the Alex Osborne one here, just yep. see that he was actually the O in BBDO, the ad agency. Was so, he? Yeah. So I'm oh. just on that point. I never realized that O. I didn't I didn't know who that was. In fact, I can't even remember the BBD, but the um the Osborne is uh the O in BBDO, the the ad agency. I know I know them from London. I think they were in Australia. I don't know, maybe they weren't in Australia. But anyway, that's that's so that was probably what did you say? He, he was 1938, it says on, on the website that I'm in here. That was probably when he was born. Yeah. So it was in the 50s that he was working in this think up um, brainstorming method, was yep. it? So he, he started using it in his own business in the 30s. Yeah. And he wrote a book okay. about it in the, in the 50s. Okay. So it was popularized then yeah. in the ad world, was it? No, it went nuts. It was a uh, an airport book. You know, it was it was the it was the airport. It was the kind of fell into the same cultural category as Rich Dad Poor Dad or the, the oh, Secret. Yeah. Or, you know, one of those books that everyone reads yeah. for a little while. Uh, but yeah. something that's really interesting is that um, even by the second edition, he's got an update. He's writing in the second edition, and he's writing in the second edition about how annoyed he is about all these people um, trying his process, doing it badly, and then saying it's a beat-up. So, like, the um, the rise and fall, the, the disillusionment with brainstorming is not actually being all it cracked up to be was already solidly in play within a couple of years. Wow. <laughs> so people were like, this is a load of crock of beep. Yeah, yeah. Um, Tried it. Didn't work. Ridiculous. Yeah, because I remember, like, working in ad agencies in uh, the mid 2000s and they were like okay we're going to do a brainstorming session I'm like why would you mm-hmm. bother like this is most people who've been through it just kind of go like there's there's not enough rigor in the in the process to really mm-hmm. get something out that's of value that's my right. perspective anyway but i'll bet you, wanna... you that you didn't do it the way that osborne set probably, it out which actually not, was no. kind of rigorous yeah, I like. I love the fact in, that he left it for a, a day, ideally mm-hmm. a night, to let the subconscious go. Because like one of my favorite videos is John Cleese, where he speaks about the power of the subconsciousness, and he tells the story of when mm-hmm. he was writing Faulty Towers, and he was going through one of his many divorces, and um, he had to leave the house. So read between the lines there, and he had the script, and um, he came back to it, and he couldn't find it. Mm-hmm. and uh, he was like oh man i need to get the script into the bbc for the for the wednesday and um what he did was he wrote it from recollection 
And that's the, the script that was produced for Faulty Towers, the one that's become a classic. And then it wasn't until several years later that he moved his desk away and the bit behind the desk, he found the original transcript. And what he could see that was the second draft was considerably better. And from the time of writing the first draft to the second draft, the power of the subconscious was was at play and was rewriting in his mind these uh, loose ends in the script. And mm-hmm. that ultimately, as he says, the power of the subconscious, just leaving it, letting it sit and coming back to it with fresh eyes is really, really rewarding. We probably don't do that enough in design, to be honest. I tend to agree. There's there's yeah. a lot of advantage in letting your mind sort something out yeah. while you go and attend to other things. Absolutely, like drink wine. So, um, so let's say, so we've got Alex Osborne, uh, he's up there on the board. Mm-hmm. It's in the 30s, published in the 50s. Um, what's the next method that in the, the longitudinal history of design methods by Zoe Rose? What's the one that? What's the one that you're you're focusing on next well, to give us a bit of breath? This actually gets it actually gets really interesting because most of the work that went into uh thank you um applied creativity after this yeah. and trying to create what what the academics were really trying to do was they were tr- and they were largely academics they were trying mm-hmm. to. Uh, establish repeatable processes. So in science, one of the things that defines the scientific process is that if you do it a second time, you'll get the same results. So reproducibility. And they were trying to do the same thing. And you get a lot of quite um, dense, thick, voluminous academic publications going through this and they don't quite get it and they don't quite get it and they don't quite get it and they don't quite get it. Um, something really turns the tables on all of this in 1971, yeah. uh, which is slightly after uh, Osborne, what should be Osborne's uh, greatest moment, in my opinion, where you get a guy called Horst Rittel, R-I-T-T-E-L, and mm-hmm. his collaborator, who I'm sure, because you're looking this up, you'll tell me his name in a second. I've just momentarily forgot it. Horst and they Rittel. come up with Johannes Rittel. Huh? Willem Johannes Rittle. Yep, and his collaborator. And what they come up with in 1971 uh, is a phrase that we will all have heard. They came up with the wicked problem. Okay. Ah, okay, the wicked problem. Right. So So the wicked problem. Yep. There's a reason. Yep. So there's a reason why this became famous. Mm -hmm. The reason why this became famous is that Riddle, through effectively applying maths, uh, demonstrated that the efforts within this cohort to identify the one true reproducible process, which will always come up with a creative solution that works every single time, was intrinsically flawed and that there exist in the world problems that provably cannot yield to a single process due to their inherent complexity. And that's what a wicked problem is. It's a problem that you cannot solve through the application of any process, no matter how good the process is. Okay. Now, something that I want to throw onto this um, topic uh, is that Riddle had, Riddle, as you'll guess from his name, he was German and he was living in America. Uh, He knew something that a lot of the uh, American enthusiasts didn't 
And we'll pause here just to note that everyone I'm describing here is pretty mm. much like a white, well-educated, north Absolutely. of North American man, like across mm. the board. And yeah. they have the life experiences that, that are those of those people at that era. Horst has lived experience that they don't because Horst remembers World War II. Mm. And he has actually a very solid understanding of what can happen in circumstances where you try to apply uh, what was called at the time a solution um, universally to a problem that's deemed to be complex, which mm. is one of the ways in which we can describe the uh, mass murders of Jews, gay people, transgender people, gypsies, Seventh-day Adventists and several other groups during mm. what we now refer to as the Holocaust. So yeah. I am, I don't believe that there's a stretch uh, involved in saying that uh, problem-solving methodologies have the potential to be used for evil. Uh, yeah. There have been many instances where we've seen problem-solving methodologies used for evil. There is yeah. a certain cultural tendency uh, in design as it's currently practiced in the West, where you and I both are, um, to think of ourselves effectively as the good guys. And we always do the good things with our good methods. Uh, yeah. Our methods are universally neutral. And yeah. it is, I think, uh, I think more attention to the history of design, design methodologies, and the outcomes of design methodologies would be very good for us as an industry because every time that we do what you were describing before, avoiding history, seeing our methods as being ahistorical, acultural, acontextual, uh, yeah. <laughs> we uh, put ourselves in a position where we can accidentally create risk. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's no doubt that if you look historically over the last 25 or 30 years and the proliferation of design, that not every design has been created for good. Um, yeah. Facebook. Facebook. Um, but, um, <laughs> but you sorry, can design things with really good intentions that still end up hurting people. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, look at the most popular one to, to kind of poo-poo on Facebook. Mm. Um, that was never created out of, you know, kind of I'm going to erode society and mm. really mm. contradict democracy and, and trying to um, basically evoke evil in, in the world. That was never the mandate. You can just so easily see how it can just morph into a different direction. And they have, they have great designers. They've had great designers involved in the team um, over the years, but yet they're in that situation now where most people would be not too sorry to see them kind of go down the swanee. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So looking at wicked problems, um, I always thought it was Richard Buchanan was the originator of wicked problems in the nineties, but you're telling me now that that came from the seventies. Oh, it's so, all earlier than you think. Yeah, it is, isn't it? <laughs> um, so yeah, that's why I had one eyebrow raised and you were like, uh, and then of course, Rittle and Weber, I've, I've heard R Rittle and Weber and I've mm -hmm. seen them in papers and stuff. So I've show, shown my naivety. Um, so that was uh, in the in the seventies, and who was adopting the wicked problem? Uh, I hate calling that a method because to me, it's more of a mindset that you're trying well, to bring. This is the really interesting thing. Mm. Now, I am 
just starting to look into this a bit as part of an aspect of um, some of my master's research. And I'm, I'm here to tell you one of the really difficult things about trying to investigate a lost area of history is that some of it is lost. So it's a little bit harder. I mean, like if I was like learning all about Marie Curie, this, this would not be a problem, but it seems that the, Bafflingly, um, it seems that the wicked problems um, imposition uh, actually succeeded uh, to a huge extent. And a lot of the people who were interested in developing um, replicable creative thinking methodologies just went, oh, rubbish. That that seems he, it looks like he's right. Probably we can't do this. Now, there was one method that I'd like to turn your attention to from, I believe it was published in 1967, because uh, this is relevant to every designer who's listening now, but we are unfortunately very deep in the weeds of, of things that are hard to track down. So nice. we've got um, uh, the guy who came up with Diverge Converge was called J.P. Guilford, and he's one of my favourite people in all of history he's wonderful mm. he's given us J- uh, diverge converge and he is a psychologist uh so new york yep pardon he's from new york yep. wasn't he yep he's yep he's a psychologist uh so yep. he is bringing the academic flavor osborne's bringing the uh corporate business flavor we'll see this actually develop through the invention of business schools, which is going to happen over this era too. And by the time we get to uh, the mid-60s, we've got Osborne is working with Sydney Parnes, P-A-R-N-E-S. Between the two of them, they come up with an institute for creative thinking, for teaching creative thinking. They do all sorts of fabulous stuff. Unfortunately, in the mid-1960s, Osborne actually dies. Osborne, out of the two of them, really had the marketing flair. You'd expect that, him being an advertiser. So what I think is the most important thing that he eventually actually did has become a little bit lost to the sands of time because Parnes did not have that marketing flair. In Mm -hmm. 67, they released the Osborne-Parnes Creative Problem Solving Method. I think they call it a method. And what's interesting Mm -hmm. about this is that we've already established that with our brainstorming, we're using that diverge-converge, okay? Yeah. In the Pans-Osborne process, they're going to set out five steps. At this stage, Osborne is really annoyed that everyone thinks that brainstorming is a complete problem-solving process, where as far as he's concerned, it's just part of ideation. Yeah. Right, which is only one part of problem-solving. He and Pons, they're going to set out. Yeah. Yep, they're going to set out five steps um, right. for creative problem solving. I'm not going to get them right off the top of my head, but you'll probably recognize them. I think it is uh, uh, it is finding the problem area, defining the problem area, coming up with solutions. Oh, this is annoying. I'm going to have to look up on my phone. Uh, and the last one is test. And those they express each and every single one as being a diverge-converge process. So like little diamonds, like the double diamond, yeah. five little diamonds all on their side. 
Yeah. And those five steps map exactly to something we will all know very well, which is IDEO's five-step design oh, yeah. thinking process. You mean to you mean to tell me they didn't come up with that themselves? Oh my, my world <laughs> is shattered. You, you, I don't <laughs> believe you that they didn't. IDEO didn't come up with design. What? No, they didn't. <laughs> what? I don't believe you. Crazy they, days, right? They took something and claimed it for themselves. Wow. <laughs> so uh, I've got them here. The the five steps here are um, when I when you click into Google, it gives you a different. So it's fact finding, problem finding, yep. idea finding, solution finding, and acceptance finding. There we go. Yeah. You got it. That's yeah. that's the one. That's the five. Yeah. So it's a five step process um, mm-hmm. that evolved into a six step model afterwards yep. by Perns, which we spoke we spoke a little bit mm-hmm. about. Um, so at this point, then you know you're looking at David Keeley at that stage in the '67 era um who went on with audio um what was his role because like i know we, we we joke um what was his role like obviously he was um absorbing an awful lot of this kind of work um i'm not dissing david keely completely but there was an opportunity there that he saw and he was like well we can commercialize this and we can actually sell this um but how was he involved or was Look, he involved i, I couldn't tell you directly but i can tell you this there is an uncanny parallel between osborne's uh uh, advertising agency collapse that he had to do something desperate about in 1938 and ideo's response to the first dot-com crash of 2001 right because ideo after the 2001 dot-com crash they lost all their clients okay And what year did they invent and start, sorry, more specifically, what year did they start selling creative thinking services? 2001, was it? It was also 2001. That's right. The the double, the um, the, uh, design thinking, the five-step process was released by IDEO in 2001. So that point of pivot is an exact parallel to what happened to Osborne back in the day. Okay. And at that point there... um, the design council were probably looking at the double diamond, which was from recollection 2005. Um, wasn't around that time. Oh, I'm grinning ear to ear because I get to do like a bit of a mic drop. Yes, it was. And if you go onto the uh, design council website and have a little bit of a poke around, there is a testimony um, from the MD who came who who delivered the double diamonds where he talks about a conversation that he had a little while earlier about design process models with uh, the person doing the same work at IDEO. And I think there's even a little throwaway line there that says, of course, kite-shaped design models have been used since the 1960s. Hmm. Which is where we see our Osborne plants. Okay. Okay. So in terms of the design council, the double diamond, um, that the double diamond and the IDEO five-step process mm-hmm. kind of go hand in hand. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? You, they, they are, well, they did, it's, it's on their own public documentation um, yeah. for the design council that they did collaborate on it. Basically, if you think of the diamond, the double diamond as being a couple of diamonds, 
and you think of IDEO yeah. as being five steps, the source text of Osborne Pans is five diamonds. Hmm. So there's a diamond. Well, yeah, the double diamond. Yep. So you just split that into design table takes the shape and uh, IDEO takes the steps and here we are. Yeah, which is the same. It's the same process. It's just... It's exactly um, the same process. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I was speaking to somebody before a couple of years ago in Australia, and I was like, "Well, you can have as many diamonds as you want." And I, I actually have an even better story in New South Wales government mm-hmm. where I was trying to uh, introduce them to service design thinking, and um, I could see there was a lot of puzzled faces in the room, like as they were like, "Hmm." And I came in the next day, and I am not lying when I say this that the project manager had printed out the double diamond numerous times and was getting the scissors out, chopping it up, trying to figure out how, how, to, how to place the double diamond into their delivery process. And I'm like, that's, that's not going to work. And they go, why? And I go, cause, cause you're just cutting squares out of paper. <laughs> oh, no. I, Look, this is probably enough years ago that I'm safe to tell the story. If I don't um, name yeah. any names, I, I did once see, um, uh, an agency that shall remain unnamed um, uh, yeah. deliver an artifact to a client um, that was showing off the results of their discovery research um, where they had like popped, they'd, they'd popped all the discovery research into the four quadrants of the double diamond. Right. <laughs> yeah, go on. It was the weirdest thing you've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> This could this could rapidly go downhill as a podcast where people just start kind of throwing. No, we won't do that. We won't tell terrible stories all day. Laughing, um, but like it's uh, the the double diamond piece is the one we like to say. Like you know, there's there's probably some other stuff going on there, but it's done a huge uh, service to the to the design industry. It helped catapult. Design into the conversations at the board level, and was like, actually, you know what? There's a lot of value to this kind of thinking. What was it? Do you think that IDO and even the Design Council as well, to some extent, what did they do better um, than say Osborne Parnes did with the five step model, or was it just a case of right time, right place? Marketing. Marketing. Yeah. There, there must have been, there must have been a, a piece there. It was like the the Parnes and Osborne model. The world just wasn't really ready for it at mm. that point. It, it can't, Maybe, and also they were up against like uh, the uh, the revelation of um, the wicked problems that came immediately after. So yeah. I don't think that this is this story is separable from the rise of business schools. <clears throat> now, the interesting thing about a business school is that a business school is predicated on the idea that you don't have to understand any industry that all industries are fundamentally the same. And if you understand some uh, high-level, decontextualized general things about business, then you can run any business. Now, that's not entirely dissimilar from the way that we as designers approach things either. Yeah, I'm really quite surprised that we don't have more um, subject matter specialists who stay in their area of subject matter. I mean, I'm an education person. 
I think there should yeah. be roles. I think I think that everyone would benefit from there being roles that were education design specific rather than people parachuting mm. in and out of, of that field. So when we look at um, IDEO and what they did, they promulgated design thinking in partnership with mm. Stanford's D School, right, which is an offshoot of the business yeah. school. Now, yeah. if we think back and remember that part of our source, te- part of our source text here is military and is from military research. And I'd like to invite you to ask me more about that because it's fascinating. Um, part of it is from that military research with the pilots. Part of it is from that business book. Uh, mm. So we can see in both those instances the uh, organizational requirements are the ones that are doing the driving. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I think the that the the D school partnership with Stanford was the thing that really cemented uh, design thinking, not least because with such a good match with the offering that business schools already had, you know, learn some generic things, apply them anywhere. That's exactly what we do when we promulgate the the um the design thinking process. Yeah, yeah, it's um. There's food for thought there. I think everyone who's listening to this episode will probably be kind of going, we've learned, we've learned something today about <laughs> the origins. I'm thinking an awful lot. One of my favorite methods we haven't really covered off is Kano modeling, mm-hmm. which I believe came from the Toyota um, mm-hmm. school, mm-hmm. school of Thinking yep. um, by Noriaki Kano. Mm-hmm. But I think that was in the 80s. So we've kind of we've kind of jumped over the eighties, um, but there's there's probably I mean we we could do a, we could do a, a whole day talking about this stuff. But Kanban um, is the nineteen forties. Kanban um, yep. was it? Yep, Toyota Corporation was the forties. Yes, it was. It wow. was yeah, it was um, it was a post war. Um, provision. So I believe there was a specific, I believe McCarthy made an edict that um, Toyota Corporation wasn't allowed to build a car. They weren't allowed to build a certain number of things and they almost went broke. So they had to get very, 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 very good um, at minimizing waste as fast as they could and those of you who are really familiar with Kanban will recognize that that minimizing waste is is intrinsic to it um but yeah it's it's a 1940s technology it's a 1940s technology but yet whenever I'm I'm googling Nariaki Kano here it's ever says the 80s it was developed in the 80s so it was maybe it's originated in the 40s and popularized in the 80s perhaps well, um, do you know what, Jerry? If it turns out I'm telling you a lie, I will apologize ten to twelve times over. I want to see a public posting on LinkedIn apologizing for the miscommunication of the origination <laughs> of the Kano modeling on the This Is Hate CD podcast with Jerry Scullion. And I want to see, you know, an I apologize poster the size potentially about two meters wide. Mm-hmm. Uh, been held above your head i'm only joking but yeah it is saying 1980s um on wikipedia mm-hmm. which we all know to be the ultimate source of truth for absolutely everything that has ever happened on this planet so is that so, kyo or, or kanban uh kano kano oh, okay no uh kanban is the 1940s uh kanban is the that's 40s the K- kanban yeah 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 kanban mm-hmm. that's right i knew i knew that was um, that was also from Toyota, correct? 
Kanban was Toyota. Yes, Kanban was Toyota. Uh, that's that's what they were doing. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so. there's, there's, they created some uh, amazing stuff. Yeah. Look, you know, in in the effort of uh, trying to give people as much information as possible, um, I'm sure we could speak for another couple of hours on talking about the methods. I know you're working on a number of talks though um, at the moment. Um, so if people want to reach out to you and learn more about when you're speaking, where you're speaking, what you're doing, um, what's the best way for people to, to get in touch with you and also learn more about your business. Great question, which is based in camera. Um, give us a shout out to how people can connect with you. Fantastic. So I am at uh, greatquestion.com.au. The training yeah. business that I run focuses on usability and accessibility, which yeah. I think of as accessibility usability for, for disabled people. Uh, I'm yeah. a disabled person myself. Uh, so mm-hmm. I help train people in getting their heads around things like design for disability, uh, accessibility standards, content design form design all the stuff that you need to be able to do Mm. yeah absolutely well we'd love to have you back on the podcast Zoe to talk Mm -hmm. about all of those things because they're really really important conversations and I know the listeners of this is HCD will have found you great today and also will uh will love to learn more about you know those topics that you've just spoken about I'll put a link to your LinkedIn on in the show notes for this episode so you can connect with Zoe ask Zoe questions Mm -hmm. um are you on uh Twitter or uh, Mastodon? Have you moved over yet? I am going down with the ship on Twitter. Unfortunately, it's so You're embarrassing right. to be me. <laughs> in a blaze of glory, and oh, I yeah. will have uh, I will have a article coming out soon on the uh, the website hosted by Dovetail. Which we'll be okay, talking yeah, about. Yep, yeah. yep. Yeah. Uh, so I've written an article uh, for them, which is about a lot about what we talked about and how it relates to uh, IQ testing and the misuse of data, including mm-hmm. in scientific racism and eugenics, again in the 1950s, mostly wow. but not exclusively in the United States. Wow. All right. Well, I'm on the Dovetail newsletter anyway, so I'm looking forward to seeing that. And if you do get a chance, send it across to me and it could be something I pop into the newsletter as well for people on thisisightcd.com. Sign up to the newsletter. So listen, look, I've had an absolutely amazing time speaking with you today. I want to say a special thanks for giving me uh, the time because I know it's your evening over in Australia. Um, So thank you from the bottom of my heart for for giving me all the, the time and energy and the information as well. Terrific. Thank you so much, Jerry. there you go folks i hope you enjoyed that episode and if you enjoyed it and want to listen to more why not visit thisishcd.com where you can learn more about what we're up to and also explore our courses whilst you're there thanks again for listening